Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 148 for June 21st, 2009. Do you use instant messaging? Some people wouldn't touch instant messaging with a detached keyboard. Others use it almost constantly. In the office, IM can be a quick way to communicate with coworkers or with family members at home or elsewhere. IM fits well into the mix of available means of communication, at least in my office, and there's no shortage of IM clients to choose from. Mac users have the widest choice of possible applications, but there's a powerful IM client that'll be right for you regardless of the type of computer you use. But warning, there's also some frustration involved. The first question might simply be, why use instant messaging? I'll admit that initially I didn't see much use for it. That's because of the way it was used in the early days. I'd watch kids spend 20 minutes sending and receiving instant messages and wonder why they didn't just pick up the phone and have a one-minute conversation with the person they were chatting with. I still wonder about that when I see IM being used that way, but IM has a lot of distinct advantages. Let's consider a business setting. If the building is on fire, I'm probably going to stand up and shout, The building is on fire! Consider that the most urgent level of communication. Immediately below that, for something that is mission critical, I might walk to someone's office or cubicle and stand there until I'm recognized. It's hard to ignore a fat guy in the doorway. The next level down, well, that would be an IM, a phone call, or both. Higher priority concerns will cause me to pick up the phone but the person I'm calling might already be on the phone. Then I have a choice. I can send an IM, which allows the recipient to read the message and respond without interrupting the phone call. Just a quick message, like, available in five. Or I could walk down to the recipient's office again and stand there until I get recognized. For routine messages, I just send an email knowing that the recipient will read it sometime that day. So IM fills a nice niche in the urgent but not emergency category. Another advantage of IM is logging. Most of the IM clients I am aware of offer the ability to record both sides of the conversation. This is particularly useful if you've asked for directions to do something or if you need to save the conversation to document what was discussed. AOL's instant messenger, known as AIM, isn't the only IM service, and with the exception of AOL's IM client, most of the clients can communicate with many of the other services. In addition to AIM, you can send and receive IMs through MSN Messenger, Yahoo Messenger, ICQ, Google Talk, Jabber, MobileMe, which was formerly .Mac, LiveJournal, Bonjour, MySpace IM, Facebook Chat, Lotus Same Time, Novell Groupwise, QQ, and Gadu Gadu, to name just a few of them. Well, that's actually most of them, but not all. Support for the additional services is one good reason to choose an IM client other than the one provided by AOL. You might have friends or business associates that use one of the other services, and using a multi-protocol application eliminates the need to have proprietary clients open for each service. I said there's no shortage of applications, and here's just a short list. There's the AOL client for AIM. 
It works with Windows, Mac, and Linux machines. I like Adium on the Mac, and that's the only place you can use it, not available for Windows or Linux machine. There is Digsby, which has become my favorite Windows IM client. It will be available sometime for Mac and Linux machines, but it isn't yet. There is Fire, available for Windows and Linux users. Pigeon, as with the others, it's a free IM client. It's open source. It's available for Windows, Mac, and Linux machines. It was previously the application I used. I stopped using it when I encountered repeated problems in which it simply lost the connection. didn't tell me it had lost the connection. I showed up as being offline, but as far as I could tell from looking at Pigeon, I was online. That was when I switched to Digsby. There is Proteus, available only for the Mac. And there is Trillion. That's another one that I like. I think it does some things very, very well. Windows and Mac only, no Linux version. Trillion is the only IM client you pay for. And you don't have to pay for it. There is a free version available. Because you can download any of the applications and try them for free, even the paid version of Trillion has a free trial period, it's a good idea to try a few of them. See which has the features and the look and feel that you like. Here's a summary of the applications that I've tried. AOL's client for AIM. I'm listing the application first because it's in alphabetical order. And that's the only reason it's first. It is, of course, in use by a lot of people. Far better IM clients exist. If you're still using the basic AOL instant messenger client, take a look at some of the others. Adium. You're not going to find a better IM client for the Mac than Adium. The installation process is uncommonly easy, even for Mac software. The process is clearly illustrated when you mount the Adium file, drag from here to there. How could that be any easier? And besides that, the little Adium duck is cute. Digsby. I said this is my current favorite on Windows machines. You can see at a glance who's on, who's available. There's a compact view that allows you to show more than 20 contacts on a screen. Unlike Pigeon, which allows me to set notifications for an individual user, Digsby offers only an all-or-nothing choice there. I hope that's on the list to be fixed in a future version. All of the applications offer visual or oral indications that a buddy has arrived, has left, or has started a conversation with you. Digsby's oral cues are among the most subtle, and I like them a lot for that reason. They're particularly good in an office environment. I mentioned Fire. Although it's a worthwhile application, Fire came in second or third consistently to other applications. Because of that, development has been halted. Mac users should probably choose one of the other applications available for Macs. Pigeon, that problem with a recent version of causing me to disappear occasionally, didn't like that. I didn't disappear physically, of course, just from my location on the instant messenger. The developers say the latest version has resolved the problem, and Pigeon has a lot of customizable features. So if they get that fixed, there's really a lot to like with Pigeon. By the way, that's spelled P-I-D-G-I-N, not like the bird. There is Proteus, my second choice for the Mac, at least until Digsby becomes available for the Mac platform, and then maybe it'll slip to third. Proteus is a powerful application with a lot of outstanding features, including support for AIM, including .Mac accounts, MSN, Yahoo, ICQ, Jabber, iChat, Rendezvous, Gadu Gadu, and Same Time. The interface looks like it was designed exactly for the Mac OS, and that's probably because it was designed exactly for the Mac OS. As the developers say, Proteus just feels like it's a part of your Mac. 
And Trillion, the only IM client available in free and paid versions. The paid version offers a host of powerful additional features, most of which I would probably never use. The free version is an excellent choice for either Windows users or Mac users. Now, I mentioned frustration. It's minimal, but it's there. The most significant frustrations come from using emoticons in one application when they're not recognized by another application. For example, you send one of Digsby's specific emoticons to a Pigeon user, it's not going to be displayed right. And Pigeon's special emoticons aren't going to be displayed right on Digsby. That's an annoyance. These guys should get together and figure out how to translate from one to the other. Even if the emoticons aren't available, the conversations are easy enough to read, and most of the applications allow you to turn on a timestamp feature. That's nice. Combined with message logging, these two features can be useful as memory joggers, or if needed, as an audit trail for conversations with coworkers and clients. There is one other frustration, SPIM. SPIM is instant messenger spam. You don't want it. The easiest way to avoid SPIM is to set your IM program to accept messages only from people you know. That means until you add someone else's IM address to your list, you won't be visible to that person. Time for another look at Windows 7. Just some odds and ends features this week. Features and bugs. Sometimes one person's feature is another person's bug. That's why programs and operating systems should allow the user to make as many configuration changes as possible. WordPerfect and Corel were early leaders in this regard, but Microsoft caught on, and now most features of most Microsoft applications and operating systems can be modified. This can make the task of supporting computers difficult because you first need to determine which settings the user has changed. Uh, that might explain, at least partially, a problem I have encountered with UltraEdit. In Windows 7, UltraEdit is, of course, my favorite text editor. UltraEdit normally starts in about 3 to 4 seconds, but on my Windows 7 machine, the startup time is nearly 75 seconds. I reported the problem to IDM, the company that makes UltraEdit. So far, they have been unable to reproduce the problem, but they say they have heard about it from a few other users. So this means it's not a figment of my imagination, but something caused by some combination of factors. They'll just have to sort out what it is. The usual suspects are applications that the user has added to the startup menu. Antivirus applications, services, and things like that. Using the system configuration tool, I turned off all non-Microsoft services and all startup applications. Then I restarted the computer and tried UltraEdit. No difference. IDM is investigating. They'll undoubtedly determine what the cause is. Meantime, I just remember to open UltraEdit early when I start the computer so it'll be ready when I need it. To make sure that the Windows Update service operates properly, Microsoft has been running frequent updates, but the updates simply copy a new version of an existing file to the system. Nothing is really being updated, except for existing applications, Office 2007, for example. These applications do receive the standard updates that have been released. Recently, I was offered updated language packs for 31 languages, most of which I do not speak. I was tempted to install Spanish and Russian, but for now, I just decided to turn them all off. It's possible to select all of the updates you don't want. Right-click them and select Hide. Microsoft will never again suggest that you install Bulgarian, unless you later decide that you want to learn Bulgarian and would like the feature to be turned back on. When the update process offered several important updates and copies of existing files, I took them. It also offered Windows Live, so what the heck? 
It's a machine that I'm probably going to reformat in the next couple of months, so I took that. The process seemed to stall at this point, but after 10 minutes or so, I noticed an extra icon on the taskbar. Windows sometimes has a focus problem. Don't we all? I'm often annoyed when a background process pops up and starts taking keystrokes from the application I think I'm using. But this was the reverse of that case. Had I not noticed the extra icon on the taskbar, I probably would have considered that the process had simply hung. Apple's process is much better in a case like this. Instead of giving a possibly unwanted application focus and allowing the user to send keystrokes to it, Apple animates the icon on the dock. You have to select it before it gets any keystroke. Some Mac users really detest that feature, but it's far better than giving an application focus and then allowing a user, who as a touch typist might not even be looking at the screen, to start sending commands to the application. I can't tell you how many times this has caused me to cancel a process that I didn't want to cancel simply because one of the keys I pressed was the one that killed the application, and I thought the application was running in the background. Microsoft really could do better. I did eventually find the window that was running in the background and approve the installation. When the installation completed, Windows Update claimed that it had failed, but the program compatibility assistant wasn't so sure. It asked me if the installation had succeeded. How should I know? Really, at this point, I haven't had the opportunity to try running the application. How could I know? The next window made it clear that the process had failed. But when I returned to the Windows Update application to rerun the installation, it wasn't there. So apparently the system thought it succeeded. You might be a little confused at this point. I know I was. So I reviewed the update history and saw that the process had failed. A second window offered help. The help window offered nothing. There might be a reason why people say Microsoft Help doesn't. By the way, when I downloaded the installer independently and ran it, the installer told me that the application had already been installed. So apparently the process succeeded. I keep one old DOS program around, partly to see if it'll run under new versions of the operating system, and partly as a reminder, because it was my favorite word processor of all time. WordPerfect 5.1 fit on a single floppy disk, a five and a quarter inch floppy disk at that. It was fast. It processed words. It offered substantial formatting, at least for the day. The day was 1989. After that, WordPerfect tried to move to OS 2 when the rest of the world was moving to Windows. But I'll always appreciate the capabilities WordPerfect 5.1 brought to the desktop. And does it still run under Windows 7? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Looks to me like Microsoft took aim at Google and smacked Yahoo. After just a few weeks of operation, Microsoft's new search engine, Bing, occasionally surpasses Yahoo in daily use. Google is to search as Microsoft is to desktop computers, but Bing could provide strong competition for Google. Together, they might leave Yahoo in the dust even more in the dust than it already is. And what about Cool? Remember Cool? C-U-I-L dot com? I might use that search engine occasionally too, but I can never remember its name for some reason. Bing is promising, but I'll probably continue to use Google as my default search engine, just as I continued to use AltaVista as my default search engine for a while after Google came to market. Remember AltaVista? It was once the most powerful search engine available. AltaVista was the product of Digital Equipment Corporation. Researchers there wanted to make the process of locating files easier. Louis Monnier wrote a crawler that collected information from public networks, and Michael Burroughs wrote the indexer. 
In mid-1995, altavista.digital.com became available to the public. Compaq acquired digital. The Internet bubble burst. AltaVista was acquired by Overture in 2003. Overture was acquired by Yahoo. <sighs> Search engines seem to be like gunfighters in the Old West, arriving in a blaze of glory and carried out on their backs, still wearing their boots when a faster competitor arrives. So I took Bing out for a test drive. Google changes its logo just about every day. Bing keeps the same logo but changes the background image. That's actually pretty clever. The background image has several hotspots on it, and those hotspots lead to specific searches related to the image. For example, the image from June 12th was of Las Vegas, and the image from June 13th was of Miami. Why? Well, some people visit Google every day just to see what's being commemorated in the logo. Bing seems to be looking for the same kind of response by building a reason for people to come back regularly. I followed one of the links on the Miami page and the standard search engine results page opened. Bing has a welcome new feature. Hover the mouse near the right edge of the results and a pop-up opens. It displays text from the page you'll be taken to if you select that link. Bing has a list of result categories on the left side of the screen and these vary depending on what's available. Miami had weather, for example, and a hotels tab, and an attractions tab, a travel tab in case the attractions and hotels tab enticed you to go to Miami. And then the final tab for Miami was images. You can choose the size of the thumbnail images you see and whether image information is always below the image or appears only when the mouse is over the image. Overall, Bing seems to be a reasonably well-thought-out search engine. And Bing tries to suggest possibilities when you start typing a search term. Sometimes the results can be kind of amusing. I typed, for example, WTVN, a radio station in Columbus. Among the possible results, it suggested WTVN-TV. That station hasn't existed for a couple of decades. It also suggested WTVN-10-TV. I suspect that WBNS, which is actually Channel 10, won't be very amused by that. And it suggested WTVN-Channel 4. WCMH, which is Channel 4 in Columbus, probably won't find that too funny either. You can create a Bing account and then control some of the settings that Bing uses for searching. Instead of relying on your IP address to know your location, as some search engines do, Bing allows you to tell it where you are. That improves local results. You can turn Safe Search on if you want to avoid surprises when you're searching, and you can specify the languages you want Bing to use when searching. Initially, Bing displays Add Bing to your browser at the top of the page. If you click that, you'll be asked if you really want to add Bing. I chose to do that. That adds Bing to the drop-down list of search engines available. One of my search engine tests involves searching for William Blinn. I do that not because I'm an egotistical brat, but because I know there are other better-known William Blinns. If the search engine finds both of us, I conclude that it's probably going to do a decent job of indexing the Internet. And that's exactly what happened here. The writer and director, William Blinn, showed up first in the list. But, hey, I'm there, too. The commonly held belief about Microsoft is that it takes the company three tries to get something right. Windows wasn't really useful until Windows 3. It took several iterations for Word to become operational. Internet Explorer, well, version 3 was accepted as being not too badly broken, but even at version 8, there's still a lot to dislike about IE. So did Microsoft get being right on the first try? The answer to that is yes and no. 
It is the first iteration of Bing, and it works pretty darn well, at least in the United States. Those trying to use Bing in other countries will find that some of the nicer features don't work. But realistically speaking, this is not the initial edition. This is the third iteration. There was MSN Search, then Live Search, and now Bing. Third time's the charm. Bottom line, I would give Bing four cats. It brings some welcome features to the search engine model. Google, though, is an awfully tough competitor. I have made Bing one of my available quick search options, but it's not my default search engine. Chances are that Google will borrow some of the better ideas Bing has brought to the market, but Microsoft did do a darn good job with Bing. If you'd like more information or you'd like to see how Bing works, check the link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. By the way, that's www.techbiter.com. In short circuits, I have just replaced a $150 wireless router. That router had previously replaced a $300 wireless router. The $150 replacement for the $300 device improved the speed. The $100 replacement for the $150 router significantly improved the speed. Now my wireless devices are all able to keep up with the Internet instead of lagging behind it. So it looks like I should be able to wait a couple of years, buy a $50 device, and get even faster service. But something occurred to me as I set up the router. The setup program captured the old router's service set identifier, that's SSID. The SSID is what the router broadcasts on Wi-Fi. The most security-conscious people turn off the SSID and depend on people who should know that it's there to know that it's there and be able to connect to it. I'm not that secretive, but I do know enough to change the default SSID, which is usually the name of the manufacturer, and at the same time to change the router's default username, if possible. With inexpensive devices, it usually isn't, but I do at least change the password. The username is invariably something goofy like admin, and the password is password. Don't leave those. I was about to accept the existing SSID, a word that isn't easily associated with me, when I realized with some alarm that the broadcast SSID was the same as one of my passwords. Not a password that I use on the local machine, but one of my passwords anyway. Bad idea. The SSID now has absolutely nothing to do with me, and it is a string I have never used anywhere as a password for anything. But as I look down the list of Wi-Fi networks that I can see from my house, I see several SSIDs that are recognizable names. An SSID such as HomeNet might not be very creative, but at least it gives away no information about you. When you set up a Wi-Fi connection, you'll have a choice of several different security options with the current batch of Wi-Fi routers. In my case, these included, in order of security, none, WEP, WPA-PSK, WPA2-PSK, and WPA-PSK with WPA2-PSK. Choosing none would be a very bad idea, but WEP really isn't much better. Introduced in 1997, Wired Equivalent Privacy, WEP, was found to have serious shortcomings. It was replaced by the Wi-Fi Protected Access, WPA, in 2003. WPA2 depends on the Advanced Encryption Standard, AES. That's a U.S. government standard with key sizes of 128, 192, and 256 bits. More is better. And it currently provides the best security. You should use the most secure protocol that your attached devices permit. 
The true security geek will take yet one more security step. By default, any wireless PC that is configured with the correct SSID will be able to access your wireless network. For increased security, some Wi-Fi routers allow you to restrict access by allowing only specific devices based on their MAC addresses. MAC, in this case, has nothing to do with Apple. MAC stands for Media Access Control, and every network adapter has a unique address. Yes, it's identifiable. So there's something else to worry about if you're a privacy nut. Denial is a powerful thing, and it still has control of some Mac users. Granted that the nature of the Unix operating system, the Mac's OS X, is somewhat more secure than Windows. Granted, too, that the profit-minded crooks won't hack the platform with 10 to 15% of the market, when they can just as easily choose to chase the platform with 80% of the market. But some Mac users seem intent on denying that there is any threat to their computers. And sometimes that attitude seems to stretch all the way to Cupertino. Six Months after Sun patched some security problems with Java, Apple finally got around to patching its version of Java. The patches fixed more than 20, 20 security problems. And some of those problems are considered to be serious, even on the Mac OS X. If you haven't run the software update, now would be a good time to do that. Sun recently released update 14 of Java version 6, and the Apple update brings that version of Java up to update 13 status. So Apple is still six months behind the curve. But at least your security ducks will all be in a row. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.